the two options of I either have to make sure my child never sees a dog or I have to drop them off at the SPCA and let the dogs bark at it, right? Those are not the two options that we want. The research shows that most therapists would say, oh, yes, I know that exposure therapy is really backed up by good research and good results. The majority of therapists don't use it. Therapists get intimidated by it. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. Lynn, today I thought it would be very helpful for us to continue and unpack a conversation that we started at our family retreat last weekend because it's such a common thing for parents and I think it will be relevant for all of us listening. And that is that one parent brought up, my child gets afraid to go to a floor of the house if she's the only one. Mm Mm-hmm. I know this is actually so common and it resonated with a lot of others, but here's the thing that is really worth talking about. They said, when do you push your kid and be mean, (laughs) you know, in Mm -hmm. air quotes, versus when do you accommodate? And I could tell you have a lot to say about this and how this applies to so many situations. So let's go. Yeah. So this question comes up a lot in a lot of different ways. So when do you push your kid? toward the thing that they're afraid of. Because you've heard me say so many times that avoidance and accommodation is what we're trying to address. Those are the things that make anxiety worse. And so parents will say, well, if my child is afraid of dogs, when do I push them to be near dogs? Or my child's afraid to be at a separate floor of the house. I was just working with a family recently And the daughter is really afraid to have the parents leave the house. She's old enough to be home alone for a little while. The mom just wants to go for a walk. And the daughter, every time the mom says, I'm just going to go walk the dog, like literally around the block, and this girl freaks out. And she's old enough, middle school age, to not freak out. So the parents will say, when do I just force them? When do I push them? And this could also be about sleep. It can be about anything, right? It can be because what we're talking about is the nature of anxiety is I want to avoid the thing that makes me feel scared or nervous or uncomfortable. So it could be sleep. It could be fire alarms. It could be dogs. It could be toilets flushing. It could be, I mean, you name it, right? The content doesn't matter all that much to me. This is really about exposure therapy. I feel like I've heard you say before, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So exposure therapy, and it's very, if we define it, is that in order for you to get over a fear, you need to be exposed to the thing that you're afraid of. And exposure therapy has been around for a really long time. So if you're afraid of snakes, we have to go hold some snakes. If you're afraid of water, we have to get you into water. And it makes sense. It's actually very well studied, very much a clinical approach that's effective. It's just hard for parents to get their kids to do these things. And also they're afraid that they're going to emotionally scar them, that they're going to push too hard. You will hear all sorts of things of you have to stay 
connected to your child. You have to love your child. You have to support your child. And just shoving them into a situation that scares them is re-traumatizing. It doesn't work. It's going to backfire. So there is a lot of conversation about it. But exposure therapy very generally means I'm going to go toward the thing that I'm afraid of. Now, here's the thing. How do you do that in a way that is supportive and caring and loving? And how do you do that in a way that you're not just freaking your kid out? You don't want to turn your house into a scientific lab experiment where you see how many dogs do I have to expose my kid to before she's not afraid of dogs. You want to think about how do you do the front loading, which is what I talk about all the time, because we want kids to understand the rationale behind the exposure. That's what is successful with me when I'm working with families. We want them to buy in. If I were just going to do straight up exposure therapy, where I would say we need to expose the child, let's take the being afraid of going upstairs. So first of all, it's hard to get kids to do things when they're terrified of them. So what are you going to do? Just like trick your kid, like go upstairs and say like, oh, I'm up here rearranging my sock drawer and then sneak downstairs and have them discover that they're upstairs alone. That's not very nice. Most parents don't want to do that. Most parents get desperate and they might think, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. But that's not how we want to go about it. You want to have a conversation with your child that says, this thing really scares you, doesn't it? And your worry pops up and your worry says, the thing it always says, (gasps) you can't handle it. Your worry is really making this into an emergency. Isn't it interesting, right? You being upstairs in your room while I'm downstairs making dinner is not an emergency, but boy, has your worry created it in that way, made you feel as if it's an emergency. All those anxious and fearful reactions pop up in your brain and your body. So we've got to retrain your brain here. Your poor little amygdala thinks that this is a dangerous thing because it's been told over and over and over again, it's a dangerous thing. So we've got to practice. We've got to practice letting your brain and letting your body hang out and recognizing that this is not an emergency. So that's the groundwork that we want to lay whenever we're doing this kind of exposure therapy. We want to have the exposure plus the information. For me, the exposure plus the front loading, the exposure plus the rationale really makes it far more successful, to be honest, but also just makes it nicer. It makes it kinder. It makes it more loving so that kids have some buy-in. So there's some understanding what they're going through. And acknowledgement. And acknowledgement, right. The same thing applies to adults. If I was working with a client, I remember a long time ago, a woman came to see me and she was terrified of snakes. It was funny. I think she wanted to go to like Disney or Universal. And somebody had told her that people walk around the parks with snakes. <laughs> which <laughs> That's not a thing. That's not a thing, right? But all she had to hear was that she could see a snake at Universal or Disney, and she was like, I'm never going there. And I could say to her, I don't think that's a thing, but somebody had told her. So she came to me specifically because she wanted to go on this trip. Now, I had to work with her on this fear of snakes. Of course, when I talked to her, she was avoiding a lot of things. She wasn't just avoiding theme parks in Orlando. She was avoiding a lot of things where she might see a snake. So if I'm going to do exposure therapy with her, or if she's going to do it herself, 
How am I going to get her to do that? She needs understanding about how this process works. She never had a bad experience with a snake. She never been like bitten by a snake or attacked by a snake. She was just afraid of snakes. So if she's going to do exposure therapy, she's going to find a way in which she can be near a snake. She has to have some understanding of what's going on in her brain and her body so she can work to give the brain more data and to have that experience and be able to get through it knowing, understanding what happens. And the interesting thing with exposure therapy, in order for it to be effective, is that you have to hang out with the discomfort. So imagine if we rate the discomfort level, which actually there's a term for that, it's called subjective units of distress or the SUDS scale. In order for exposure therapy to work, you have to be up there around an eight or a nine on that unit of distress. You have to feel distress and then you have to hang out with the distress long enough for your brain to relearn that this is not an emergency. So if you have that child who doesn't want to go upstairs in the house by themselves without another family member, would you gamify it potentially and say, I have put something at the top of the, like a piece of candy or a cookie at the top of the stairs. And there actually is a second cookie to have in one of the rooms if you can find it. Yep. And you can eat the cookies up there and then come back and tell me how many you ate Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yep, exactly. You want to give the explanation and then you want to say, now look, we've got to bring your worry upstairs and you've got to bring your amygdala upstairs because it's inside your head. So you got to go with it. So you're going to go upstairs and we're going to make this a game because I want you to be able to hang out upstairs long enough for your worry and your amygdala to be like, hey, wait a second, we can handle being up here. I want to give you a different story about going upstairs. Now, I am not going to give you cookies for the rest of your life if you go upstairs. But if we make this a game and if we can be playful about it, when you go upstairs and you find the cookie or you find the Super Bowl or whatever you want to use, that gives your brain a chance to relearn. That gives your brain a chance to hang out upstairs and maybe come up with a different story. So you might even say, if it's a little kid, you might even say, the story right now is, if you go upstairs, <gasps> there's something so scary up there. Oh, no, no, I can't. And you come downstairs. How about if we say this story? If you go upstairs, there's a Super Bowl under somebody's pillow. And you don't know which pillow, but if you go upstairs, and now your brain has a different story. Your brain has a story of, oh, there's a Super Bowl up here. This is fun. I'm going to try and find it. Now, is a part of you still going to be scared and worried? Absolutely. But we need to take that scared and worried part upstairs so it can relearn. And that's the information that you give. So you're making it a game. You're having them do the thing that they're afraid of. They understand that there's this scary movie that they watch. We're going to give them an alternative movie to watch. You can watch both movies at once, by the way. That's okay. We're not trying to get rid of the scary movie and say you can't have that scary movie. And then we want them to practice. We want them to step into the situation so they have an opportunity for the brain to relearn. When we come back, 
let's talk about how therapists and parents together can really integrate this in practice. I am really working on improving my diet by making sure that I get the best quality products, organic foods, and I really want to make sure that I'm not using harsh chemicals in my home. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting everything online and then quickly shipped to my doorstep, that is a huge time saver. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. I can use their filters to suit my lifestyle needs. So maybe you're looking for organic snacks for your kids, or maybe you're gluten-free. As a Thrive Market member, I save money on every single grocery order. You will too. On average, I save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily, always has some of my favorite brands. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash flusterclucks. Thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Well, many are destined to fail, but lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to Earth Breeze. Earth Breeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if Earth Breeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks. That's earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription. So Lynn, I I think this makes a lot of sense. What I always hear other listeners and at our retreats, people are always seeking the language from you. Mm -hmm. They understand the concept, but they're always like, but what do I say? What do I say? So let's talk about if you're another therapist, if you're a parent, how do you put this into practice? In therapy, very early on, if I'm dealing with somebody who's afraid of something, who's anxious about something, 
I will want to lay out very quickly that what we're doing is we're retraining the brain and that you have to step into this situation in order to give your brain a different story about it. Because there's been a story about dogs, a story about bees, a story about scary monsters under the bed. We need a different story. So that's the first thing I say is that we've got to create a different story. And now we've got to let the brain and let the body experience that. We've got to do something. Just talking about it, just imagining it, just thinking about it is not enough. We've got to do something. So what we're going to do, we're going to step toward the thing that you're scared about. And we're going to go into that situation with a whole different way of talking and thinking about it. We're actually going to do the opposite of what your worry wants you to do. Now, this is a big concept for people to get a hold of, particularly because a lot of people, including clinicians, a lot of schools will do the opposite of this to say, if this child is afraid of this, we need to make sure that they don't get exposed to it. We have to make sure that they don't get triggered. We have to make sure that we're giving a lot of reassurance and a lot of comfort. So this can be a real shift for people to start talking about it in this way. But if you can talk to yourself and talk to your kids, about doing the opposite of what the worry wants so that you can step in and expose yourself to the thing you're afraid of. And then we're going to get this attitudinal shift. So the attitudinal shift sounds like, all right, we are going to go toward the thing you're afraid of. And your brain, your amygdala, your worry is going to say, oh, oh no, no, no. And you're going to say, you know what? We knew that was going to happen. We were going to expect that to happen. And we even like that that happened. Because clinically, as we know with exposure therapy, you have to feel distress and then have the distress decrease in order for it to be effective. If the goal is always to get rid of the distress and never have the child feel distressed or never have you feel distressed, you are not going to do the process that's necessary, which is, here's this scary thing. Let me hang out. The language you want to use is we're going to step toward this thing that your worry is afraid of. Make that little separation. So helpful to make that little separation. We're going to step into the thing. We're going to step toward the thing that you're afraid of because we want you to feel distress and then hang out so that you can then relearn. That's the language you want to use. And then we want to make it a game and we want to offer some little prize that they do it because it's hard to do. We want to acknowledge this is hard to do. Because you seem to treat anxiety differently than so many other therapists do, would you say that this type of exposure therapy is used by others? Or is this more of a CBT kind of thing that you find effective? Exposure therapy has been known to be effective. It is part of CBT, right? It is part of, it's the behavioral part because cognitive behavioral therapy. So we want you to step into things. Interestingly, the research shows that even though most therapists who treat anxiety or don't specialize in anxiety, but most therapists would say, oh, yes, I know that exposure therapy is really backed up by good research and good results. Most therapists, the majority of therapists don't use it. Therapists get intimidated by it because they're afraid that if a person does some exposure practice and they get upset or get distressed or it goes poorly, They're afraid that they're going to scare the client off. They're afraid that it's going to be too much. 
I think a lot of therapists probably talk about doing exposure therapy. They do a ton of preparation to get somebody ready for their exposure therapy. I tend to move a little quicker, right? Within the first few sessions, I want you to get the idea that we're going to step into this stuff. We're not just going to talk about it. We're going to do it. If you ask the majority of therapists, is exposure therapy effective? Is that an important part of treating anxiety? I bet they would all be like, oh, yes, absolutely. And then if you said, okay, anonymously, do you use it? What the research says is most therapists are like, well, because it gets overwhelming. This is why parents don't want to do it too, because they feel like they're mean. They feel like, you know, what if it goes wrong? Parents will say to me, well, you've given us this assignment to go and get close to a dog or to leave her upstairs or whatever. What if it goes wrong? Am I emotionally scarring my kid because she's so distressed? Can we just pause for a second and enjoy that most therapists will not actually follow through with exposure therapy because of their own anxiety? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. In defense of therapists, we're generally nice people that want to help. And so when we're supposed to do something that we feel like makes our client uncomfortable, you're exactly right. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to make somebody feel upset. We don't want to piss off a parent right? Because we're in this business because we like to feel helpful. You know, especially like a very coddling pediatric therapist. Yeah. It's really that meta point that you're either going to address the content and follow anxiety and keep everyone comfortable and certain, or you're, you're going to be a little bit of a bull in the china shop. Yeah. I was on this Facebook group thing yesterday, just caught my eye, and they were talking about having difficulty with separation anxiety because everybody was offering advice, they were all saying, make sure your child knows exactly where you are. One person said, you know, a therapist or the school counselor told me that separation anxiety is about not knowing where a parent is and worrying about where a parent is. So I make sure that she knows exactly where I am during the school day. I make sure that she knows exactly what time I'm going to pick her up. And that's the problem with this is that it all works in the short term if you're trying to create comfort. So you've got a school counselor that was saying, she's worried when she's not there with you. Let's make sure she knows exactly where you are all the time. It's hard to get parents, to get schools, to get therapists to do the things that actually, you know, I mean, one of the hallmarks of exposure therapy is that you have to feel distress in order for the exposure therapy to work. And oftentimes that's where people were like, I'm out. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk more about that. Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful, but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. It's in-network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, 
relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. Okay, we're back. As a parent, and I hear so many parents say, like, we've seen this person and it's just not doing anything. It's like, look, you're either going to go after the content and coddle, or you are going to say, we are here to disrupt patterns. Like, it's just that simple, right? Right. Yes. And the way that people think about it is that we're going to coddle and we're going to do the disorder and we're going to make sure my child is never upset. And then the other option they give themselves is, or we're going to be mean and shove them in, right? And there's a, <laughs> there's a really important third option, which is we're going to give you information and support and love and encouragement and explain to you how exposure therapy works and why we're going to make it an active process and how can we make it a game? How can we make it a little more interesting? How can we make it even a little bit more fun, right? The two options of I either have to make sure my child never sees a dog or I have to drop them off at the SPCA and let the dogs bark at it, right? Those are not the two options that we want. The third option is, is that we want you to be able to step into things that make you uncomfortable, learn that you can handle them, and sometimes even get pretty habituated to it, which is a term that we use. Here's the analogy that I use oftentimes when I'm talking about this with adults and when I'm talking about this with schools and with therapists. Say you're trying to stop smoking cigarettes and you say to yourself on Sunday night, all right, you know what? Tomorrow morning, I am not going to smoke. You get rid of all your cigarettes. I'm going to wake up on Monday morning and I'm going to not smoke. So you wake up on Monday morning and you really want a cigarette. You're having a craving. If you are going to successfully stop smoking, if you are going to successfully interrupt this pattern, you're going to have to ride through that craving. You're going to have to feel really uncomfortable. 
you're going to have to not do what a huge part of your body wants you to do, which is to go buy more cigarettes. You're sitting there, oh my God, you're craving, you're craving, you're craving. If you can ride through that craving, be uncomfortable for a while, there'll be a period of time then the craving will start to decrease. Now, will it pop up again when you go back to work and your friends say, hey, we're going out for a smoke? Yes. But the way to change the behavior is to ride out the discomfort so that you know you can get to the other side. Similarly, when you are stepping into something that makes you uncomfortable, you're going near a dog, you're staying alone upstairs in the house, you're going near a snake, you've got to sit with the discomfort, you've got to ride that out so that you can get to the other side. That's how the brain gets new data. That's how it learns. That's why exposure therapy works, because we're providing that new data to your brain to say, huh, it's not what I thought it was. So being able to do that option of let's step into it with support and love and encouragement and a game, that's what we want to do. But I think a lot of people think that it's just, I have to expose my child to that and she's going to freak out and that's going to be terrible. And I don't want her to go through that. That's not the only option. The more that we step in and say, we have to make sure that you're never alone in the house, or we have to make sure that you never see a dog, or we have to make sure that you don't ever get exposed to this terrible thing, the more that we're confirming for the child or for yourself, if you're dealing with this, that you can't handle it. That's how this thing becomes so controlling. That's how it becomes a disorder. So when we're talking about exposure therapy, there is exposure. What information you have going in, how you feel supported, how we can change and interrupt the patterns, just like you said, that's the key to it. Well, when parents use the language, when do I be mean and force something, the answer is really never. (laughs) Right. It's about the front-loading conversation that explains this to the child. Yeah where it's like, we're going to help retrain this part of your brain. Do that. And then you do that kind of exposure. That's not mean. The child understands it. Yes. With the caveat that it's not one trial learning. You say you explain all this to your child fabulously and say you're doing it. There is still a very good chance that when you're still first doing this, that your child is going to turn to you and say, you are the meanest mommy ever, right? Or (laughs) why are you being so mean? They will accuse you of all sorts of things. But look, kids accuse us of all sorts of things anyway. If you won't let them buy the Lego set they want, they'll also accuse you of being mean. This exposure is surrounded by, is embraced by information, empathy, support. And let me say this word also, which is critical, consistency. You have to do it over and over and over again. You can't do it once and then say, oh, well, that didn't work. I'm not doing it again. This is just like you learn anything else. We're going to do it through practice. We're going to do it through consistency. We're going to do it in a way that allows the brain to learn. I just want to share that when this happened to me as a parent, and we'd been doing the podcast, and I thought I had language that was going to make my front loading go really smoothly with my little guy. He ended up crying. I was like, wait, that wasn't supposed to happen. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I knew this. He was supposed to be happy and excited. (laughs) So 
I mean, I mentioned that because this isn't about like, if I say the right thing, then all of this is going to go away and it's going to be fixed quickly. But he did cry the first conversation we had, but we got a lot of information discussed. The front loading happened so that then I didn't have to have the full conversation the next time. I just referenced the conversation. And frankly, I also laughed with him. I kind of poked fun at myself that I made him cry. Mm-hmm. That wasn't exactly my plan. And I'm, you know, maybe I could have done it differently, but then I acknowledged that and then it did happen. The change happened. So I'm just trying to help other parents out there know that this isn't like, I heard it, it was the magic bullet, problem solved. Right. And the other thing too, to keep in mind is that if your goal is to not have your child get upset or feel any distress, then you're going to have a tough time doing this. You're also going to have a tough time having them step into most anything in life. If that's the line that you draw in your parenting is that, oh, I said something that made my child cry. You can make your child cry in all sorts of ways that are not mean. If your goal is to try and do what we're talking about here, to interrupt a pattern and to get over this hump and not have anybody feel anything, you not have you feel nervous or upset, not your child feel nervous or upset, you're never going to get there. Which again, going back is why a lot of therapists don't do this because it makes people uncomfortable, right? This is the very nature of working on this is that we have to be able to experience discomfort, to experience emotion, to experience distress in a loving environment. But this is also where you always talk about if you've got the anxiety as a separate name from the child, you can talk differently about the anxiety and say, the anxiety's name is Samantha. We are not letting Samantha do this. I'm here to support you. Right. Again, you're able to talk about the separation. This process that Samantha is bringing to the table is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm but I'm here to help you with it. And that's where that language becomes very helpful. That's right. And it is a process. And so you, you as a parent have to be able to tolerate the process. You have to tolerate the steps back that you might take. You got to hang in there, but it's really worth it. In that conversation that I was looking at on Facebook, these parents conversing, this one mom that said it was really important that the daughter know exactly where I was, important that the school was able to contact me at any time. The way it ended, that conversation ended on Facebook is the mom said, and the next year going back to school, she begged not to have to go to school. And so now we are currently homeschooling her. Now, homeschooling can be a fantastic thing, but this little girl is being homeschooled because she has separation anxiety. And the advice that they were given and the tact that they took is the exact opposite of what would really help her with her separation anxiety. They helped the separation anxiety. They didn't help with the separation anxiety. And that's where we just want to recognize that stepping in, stepping in, stepping in is really what we want to do with this. They served the separation anxiety, just for clarity. Yep. They served it. They said, how can we make you stronger separation anxiety? And the anxiety said, hey, how about if we stay home all the time? And they were like, okay. Yeah. That's not going to make it better. You know, I read this and I thought, well, this poor family is going down the path that I don't want them to go down. But it's so, so common. And exposure therapy is obviously the opposite of avoidance. 
So I think in sum, <laughs> what you want to think about is the concept, the bigger concept of exposure therapy. It's certainly a therapeutic approach or it's a therapeutic strategy that we use, but just think about it in terms of your own parenting. If you're really seeing worry show up or if you're noticing that your child is wanting to avoid things, that you can use this concept of exposure therapy in your own parenting just by helping your child understand what's the rationale behind stepping towards something rather than stepping away from something and avoiding it. And remember, too, that there are certain things that kids can avoid that it's fine for them to avoid. You do not have to watch scary movies. You do not have to get on roller coasters. You do not have to jump off the high diving board if you're not ready to do that. But if we're talking about things like being alone in the house, being near dogs, going into school, getting on the school bus, you can use this concept of how can I lovingly support you toward the distressful thing in a way that helps you understand that we're retraining the brain. Just think about it in that way. Do you have any closing words for the therapists out there? <laughs> uh, well, I'm one of you people. I know it's harder work to do this because you've got to come up with assignments. You've got to follow through. It's an active process. And that's one of the things I say all the time when I'm training clinicians. The family should be doing something between sessions. It makes our job harder, but it is so worth it because the payoff is so, so great. I mean, you'll be a better therapist and families will experience what you want them to experience. We don't like to be mean. We don't like to upset kids. We don't like to feel like we're pushing too hard. The therapists need to be the ones that are saying, this is how we get there. Let me show you how we're going to get there. I'm with you all the way, but you've got to take the initiative to say, this is an active process. You can do it. It's just more work. So Lynn, I'm super excited for you because this weekend you're going to the Newport Beach Film Festival. I am. For the premiere of Anxious Nation. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this movie. So Anxious Nation, yes, it's the world premiere at the Newport Beach Film Festival. It's funny because I was just having a conversation with Laura Morton, who's the producer and the co-director. We first had a conversation about this. She first contacted me about this documentary on October 8th of 2018. So we've been really talking about this and I've been involved in this for four years. This documentary was made, started obviously before COVID, just to address the rising rates of anxiety in kids and teens, what's going on, looking at our mental health system. It's a pretty amazing documentary. It's got experts. I'm one of the experts. It's also got a group of incredible families that have been so honest and so vulnerable about their struggles with anxiety. It takes a very unflinching look at what's going on with our kids and asks the question, how are we going to stop this? And it doesn't pull any punches. Yeah, so I will see the full version of it for the first time because I've seen it in fits and starts in Newport Beach this weekend. So I know people will ask how they can see it. Yeah. The answer is the distribution on a streaming service isn't known yet. Correct. Yeah. At what age is this documentary appropriate? 
there's some big stuff in this, like it doesn't pull any punches. So I, I wouldn't show it to a 10-year-old probably. I would say probably by middle school, it's really appropriate. It's going to open up a lot of great conversations. There are kids in the documentary that are 11, 12, 13. There are also young adults. It's for adults and probably teenagers and not for kids. I don't know where it's going to be available yet. That's not my role in this, but it's getting a lot of great press. It's getting a lot of publicity. It's certainly a timely topic. Who are some of the other experts? Dan Siegel, who's a psychiatrist, very well known. Dr. Shafali Sabari, who's you may know from Oprah fame. Harold Koplowitz, who is the medical director of the Child Mind Institute, and then some other people as well. It's a pretty packed lineup. And then there's, there's several kids that are just fantastic telling their stories. It's really pretty amazing. This is actually a really big weekend for you because... The book comes out on October 18th. Yes. It's called The Anxiety Audit. It is called The Anxiety Audit. October 18th is the official release date. If you've ordered it, it'll be showing up at your house soon. It's a pretty big few weeks for me. But you can handle it. Yeah, I can handle it. I think of all the things you're doing, I think the most challenging part of it all is just the fashion pressure that you're going to have. Yes, you're exactly correct. Because as we're recording this, I need to pack. And the hardest part about all of this for me is going to be picking what I'm going to wear. The fashion pressure is intense. And if you won't, we know you'll hear about it. (laughs) Yeah. So everybody, I welcome all of your comments about the movie and the book and all that kind of stuff. If you have any comments about my dress or my shoes, please keep them to yourself. (laughs) Someone did comment once. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Somebody came to a presentation of mine and they said, oh, it's such a great presentation. I love your dress. If you just paired it with a pair of low suede booties, <laughs> that would have been fantastic. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she was a stylist and she was a parent at one of yeah. the school audiences. You know what? She was right. I needed to pair that dress with a pair of low suede booties. So <laughs> I appreciate wherever you are, if you're listening, thank you for that fashion tip. Yeah, yeah. wherever you are, she might need to hire you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Bree. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Bree, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.